Welcome to Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stat. Hey guys, welcome back to Junior Doctor's Corner. This is the first episode for the month of September and I am very excited about this one. I can't wait for you to hear Dr. Dinesh Palipana's story if you haven't already. Um, He essentially is an amazing and inspirational human being. Long story short, he did not let his... Um, accident and disability defined him. He, despite becoming a quadriplegic halfway through medical school, went on to finish his medical degree, although um, a little bit later than he initially planned. And so I really hope that you enjoy this amazing story and episode. If you do, please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and spare a couple of minutes if you can to leave us a review. It really helps get our message out to other junior doctors and medical students who need to hear it. Without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. So Dinesh, thank you so much for joining me on Junior Doctors Corner. Well, thank you very much for having me. Now, for those who haven't had the pleasure of knowing you, can you please tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, my name is uh, Dinesh. I'm in PGY3 at the moment, and I work as a senior house officer in the emergency department. Um, my journey through medicine has been um, interesting, I guess, in that in the third year of medical school, I had a car accident that caused a spinal cord injury. Um, So I lost the use of my fingers and everything below the chest. And since the accident, um, yeah, it's been a very interesting couple of years. And so, Dinesh, you are famous and for very good reasons. You're the second person in Australia to graduate from medicine with quadriplegia and the first in Queensland to complete a medical internship. That alone is an amazing achievement uh, but you know what amazes me even more is your story you know can you please tell us a little little bit more about what exactly happened because you walked into medical school completely able-bodied well I just started my third year of medical school before the accident I used to you just don't think about something like this happening to you and I used to play basketball every day travel do all sorts of things and, you know, I was actually really loving life because I loved medicine, I loved, you know, everything that I was doing. So things were really, really good. I just started third year and that was also an exciting time because you suddenly get to go into the hospitals and, you know, do all these things that you've learned about. But on the 31st of January 2010, I was visiting my parents up in Brisbane and I was driving back to the Gold Coast. I was on the highway, it was about 8.30 p.m. That whole day it had been raining on and off and the road was still a little bit wet. I 
was driving along, just listening to some music, perfectly boring. And suddenly my car just lost control. I think I might have hit a water puddle or something. I can't really remember. And no one could really find what was on the road, but my car just completely lost control. It started sliding all over the road and then it went up an embankment and came back down, hit the tarmac and it just started rolling nose to tail. It's probably the most violent experience that I've ever had in my life. Just the noise and the forces going through my body. Um, but, you know, at that point I just thought that I should enjoy it and I thought of it as a roller coaster. The worst thing though was when the car landed and I looked around and it was dead silent, it was dark, quiet. Um, there's blood all over my white T-shirt, but um, the scariest part was when I tried to get out of the car and I realised that I couldn't move mm. and I tried to open the door with my fingers and my fingers weren't working. But then I tried to feel my legs and I couldn't feel them. And I think I was far enough into medical school to understand the worst thing had happened. So that was just horrifying. The feeling that I had at that point, it was, I can't even explain it. It was, it was sickening. Mm. Funnily enough, um, there was a fire truck that first attended the scene and I met these firemen a couple, of, uh, a couple of months ago, actually, and we caught up and talked about what happened. And they told me that their fire truck also lost control. So there must have been something on the road at that time. Mm. Yeah, but that was nine years ago. And I spent you know, a better part of the year in hospital at the PA in the spinal unit. Mm -hmm. which was also eye-opening to be a patient. And then uh, I spent another four years just putting my life back together and then I came back into medical school. You know, after having gone through such a horrific experience, um, you know, literally life-changing, at the moment, at this point in time, your uh, cervical spinal cord injury is not completely reversible and um, we'll talk a little bit more about your research on this uh, but you you spent some time away to put your life back together uh, what exactly was it that inspired you to return and complete your medical degree I mean I imagine it was no easy feat um, coming back and you know I also imagine that there must have been a lot of people who were supportive of your decisions but at the same time I'm sure there were also naysayers so uh, how did you deal with all of that? The thing is I you know before medicine I studied law and when I was going through law school I really I actually went through this period where I became I went through depression I had anxiety um, I had panic attacks and I was actually agoraphobic for a period of time where I was too afraid to go outside the house. But that was probably one of the best things that happened to me because it really gave me time to think about what I wanted to do with life and that's why I chose medicine. So medicine is something that's really close to my heart and it's something, you know, that I thought about so deeply um, to get into. So after the accident, there was not a single moment where I didn't think about coming back to medicine. Um, even in the ambulance, actually, I was talking to, um, there happened to be an emergency physician on the ambulance that night, and I was even talking to him about coming back to medical school. Wow. So this whole idea, yeah, so this whole idea didn't really, you know, leave my head 
at any point. My passion for medicine wasn't lost. But it was, you know, there were suddenly so many different logistics in my life that needed to be thought about. Um, you, know, every, you know, it takes me a lot longer to get ready and um, I had to figure out different ways to do things. And with a spinal cord injury, every single part of your life is affected financially, um, in personal relationships, everything. So all that was destroyed. So the reason it took me so long to get back to medicine is just to navigate a lot of those things um, and also just get my head into the space where I could face the world again with, you know, in a difficult, different physical state that was really hard to come to terms with because you have this, um, I guess, view of who you are and what you even look like physically and suddenly all that had changed. Mm. And that was one of the hardest things to come to terms with. Um, but, you know, I, like you said, I had friends and family that kept poking and prodding me, people from the medical school. There were also people that said this is a pretty bad idea and you should, you know, you should just do something else. And some people really close to me said those things as well and I think it was out of love. But in the end, you know, I just had to take a dive and give it a chance. And it was one of the biggest lessons I've learned in life is that you should just uh, sometimes just dive into the unknown and give things a shot. And if it doesn't work out, it's okay. But if it works out, then awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. You managed to finish... Uh, medical school and you've been working for the past few years at Gold Coast University Hospital. I'm really curious about this. Um, What kind of reactions do you get from your patients when you first introduce yourself to them as their doctor? Yeah, that's, um, you know, uh, before before I came back to medical school, I had to meet all these different um, supervisors that were going to oversee me as a medical student. And one of them, they were quite opposed to the idea of me coming back. And they said, you know, I don't think the parent patients would take you seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it was actually in the back of my mind too. I thought, wow, I wonder wonder how the patients would see me. Um, I wonder if they would feel okay. Hmm. Funnily enough, in the three years that I've been a doctor now and the two years I was a medical student, not one patient has uh, said anything weird to me. Um, in fact, all the reactions have been positive and I've been so glad to have been a part of their journey because, you know, some of them have said, you know, I, I think you'd understand having been a patient or yeah. you know, I think you would have gone through the same thing. So that's been really nice. Yes. So Patients actually have been, you know, uniformly accepting, which is amazing. That's really good to hear. Um, It's great that they have been able to see what you went through as something that added to you being a doctor as opposed to taking away from it. Likewise, when you mentioned that you experienced anxiety and depression in the past, um, you know, while you were um, doing law, uh, I think that adds to, you know, your um, wholesomeness as a doctor because you're able to relate and understand where patients come from. Yeah, it's, it, it has really helped me. And, 
all those experiences, you know, sometimes um, you're at work, you're in the thick of, you know, a hundred different things, but you often, well, I often find that I think back to how I felt when I was a patient. It was so disempowering and scary um, and you've lost control. So I try to anchor myself back to those memories just so I can be a better doctor for the patients and think about what they're going through. Mm. Now, so in addition to working as a busy doctor, you're also a lecturer at Griffith's um, Medical School and a research fellow at Menzies Health Institute. Uh, and you recently, uh, you know, got awarded a $2 million grant for your research. So congratulations. Can you please tell us a little bit more about the research that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really, really excited to you know, have this opportunity to do the research. We've actually called this project Serendipity in the back of, uh, on the background because a lot of these things fell into place by chance. Okay. But just to give you a bit of background, um, I've obviously been very interested um, since the accident in the research that's going on in spinal cord injury. And I've, you know, I've been wanting to cure myself, obviously, at some point. In uh, about 2013, there was some research on animal studies that came out of Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And it demonstrated that electrical stimulation of the spinal cord plus some drugs, serotonergic drugs, um, allowed rats with spinal cord injuries to regain function after a period of time. And that was really exciting. Yeah, it was... um, a super exciting time, but I remember reading about it back then. I'm like, oh man, these are still rats. When are we going to get to see humans? So a couple of more years went by and there was a bit more research done on humans this time. And there were two, two things. So one, one, uh, one school of thought, I guess, translated that into humans and these humans started recovering function, which is really exciting. Then um, another group in the United States at Duke University, they started training humans with um, thought-controlled rehabilitation. They used EEG headsets to read these guys' brain waves, essentially, mm-hmm. and translate that into a functional pattern. So they, when they thought about walking initially in a virtual reality environment, they could see themselves walk then that graduated into electrically stimulated things for their legs and then eventually a robotic exoskeleton. So they thought about walking and it activated that. Yep. The cool thing about all these studies is that the patients went from motor complete to motor incomplete. And it's still crude. One of the researchers said, you know, this is the model T forward of spinal cord injury recovery so we can make this better and um, we can get more out of it. And that's kind of where we're at in the spinal cord research community. But um, I was living in this apartment building a couple of years ago and I happened to meet my neighbour who lived about three doors down on the same floor. And I started talking to him and it turned out that he was a researcher at Griffith. Hmm. And I told him about all these different studies that have happened and I said, wow, I'd love to replicate this here or, you know, I'd love to build on this or do more on this. 
So we cobbled together bits of money and bits of equipment. And we even found an EEG headset in someone's drawer. At the <laughs> yeah. I was, I was talking to this guy about it at Griffith once and he said, oh, my God, I've got one of these in my drawer. I swear. <laughs> no. um, we put all these bits and pieces together and then we put it all together and uh, created a proof of concept and shown, you know, show that we have the technology and the equipment to do this. And then, um, yeah, um, through another series of really um, fortunate events, um, we were able to get a very generous grant to make this work. So um, that put me at a um, really interesting time because I just got accepted into radiology training in Brisbane. Right. And, you know, I mulled this over so much because the research is in Gold Coast, that's in Brisbane. Mm. And I just thought, you know, I need to commit and try to cure this and need to stay local to make this work. So I talked to the um, hospital about radiology and they were happy for me to continue the project here. So right now I'm going to be doing part-time emergency medicine and part-time research. Right. I'm super excited um, about the choices that are made and what we're going to do. So that's where we're at. It sounds very exciting and I look forward to see what you come up with. Thank you. Now, so on top of all of that, you're already a busy enough person, uh, but you are also a co-founder of Doctors with Disability Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about this uh, organisation that you started and, um, you know, tell us a bit about why you've um, created Doctors with Disability Australia and uh, what you hope to achieve through it? The whole uh, conception of Doctors with Disabilities Australia is grounded in my own experiences uh, after having spinal cord injury. And before me, there was really um, one other guy. His name is Harry Eamon, who's the rehabilitation physician in Melbourne now. And he got Guillain-Barre syndrome and he was in medical school. So our functional levels are pretty close. But what we found was, um, you know, after I came back to medical school, actually, in 2015, the medical deans of Australia and New Zealand created um, the inherent requirements documents. And that basically was adopted by a few medical schools, except for, uh, you know, Griffith obviously had a different approach, but it prescribed all these different physical characteristics that a medical student has to have. And if it was applied strictly to me, I couldn't be excluded from studying medicine because it gives you all these different, you know, motor qualities and sensory qualities and different things. So the environment for medical students with physical challenges became a bit um, unfriendly at the mm. time. Mm. After that, I went, you know, I went through the process of getting an internship in Queensland and that became a massive issue. So while everyone else got the internships, I um, it took you know two days before everyone started work is when I got my job. Oh wow! And it was all because of the spinal cord injury. Um, you know, they there were questions about whether I could practice, whether how I'm going to work, all this kind of jazz. So it didn't matter that I passed medical school and done all the clinical rotations. There were, there were still issues um, about them taking on a doctor with a physical 
challenge. So there was that. And um, after, you know, since I've been working, I've obviously had some discussions about specialty training and all that kind of, um, all that aspect of being a doctor. And there are some challenges there as well. So for a doctor or a budding doctor that has some physical challenges, there are a whole heap of different issues along the way. In the United States and the UK, they've taken a very different approach. So in the UK, the General Medical Council had this initiative called Welcomed and Valued. And their whole idea was to invite a more diverse group of people in medicine. And the US did a similar thing. So our whole idea is to try and change some of these things every step of the way in Australia. And we've had a great deal of support from the Australian Medical Association, the Australian Medical Student Association. Um, so there, there's a good amount of support from some of these organisations. And um, the medical board has been really good. They, you know, when they registered me, it was probably one of the more straightforward and transparent processes that I had. So there are organisations and bodies that are very progressive and open, but there are still some barriers to break. And that's what we're trying to do with Doctors with Disability Australia, but also just helping people one by one. You know, we get inquiries about how will I do this if I can't use my hand or yeah. I've got a human impairment, what, what does this mean? So we can try and help people out on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. That's amazing. What an amazing initiative you started and... Uh, I couldn't think of a better person to pave the way for doctors with disability other than you. Oh, thanks, Dad. What I'd love for um, the audience to know is how can we as doctors, uh, you know, what can we do to support our fellow colleagues who might be or are in similar situations as yourself or, for the lack of a better word, disabled? A lot of the barriers are built around preconceptions, and, you know, I, I think even outside of um, the sphere of disability, it's one of the problems that we face in the world, right? We, we build these ideas about people before we get to know them or ideas about things. And it's been the same for me. And, you know, before I came back to medical school, before I started work, even I had fears about what could go wrong. So I had, you know, a thousand different things in my head about, oh, will I be able to do this? Will I be able to do that? Will that work? And I think it was the same with other people as well. You know, like the um, the clinical supervisor that I told you about, they had concerns about whether patients would take me seriously. They had mm. concerns about whether I'd be able to complete my rotations okay. Mm. Um, so all these things are things that we have in our heads. The funny thing is when I actually started working and when I got into it and when I got into being a student, a lot of these issues weren't an issue at all. And today um, I've had a very, I've been really lucky in that my um, hospital has been largely supportive and I've been in clinical rotations that were very open-minded as well. And I've worked a large part of it in the emergency department. So the Gold Coast University Hospital's emergency department is a pretty special place in that, um, you know, the leadership and my colleagues have been really open-minded and I've been just able to work largely autonomously, really, um, you know, 95% of the things I do, I do on my own. 
Um, That's amazing because, you know, as someone who hasn't had as much um, or unfortunately I haven't had the chance to see you in action, um, you know, when you when you think about an emergency department that's always bustling and so busy and people hurrying yeah. around and sometimes it requires a lot of procedural work, uh, it's yeah. just amazing that you're able to do 95% of the work you're all by yourself. Yeah, well, it's, you know, I mean, it, so it would be the odd thing like doing a PR exam or a, a vaginal exam um, and you know, some of the procedural things can be, you know, I can pick the patients, you know, if I think they need suturing. Um, one of my colleagues, I'll, I'll leave it for one of my colleagues. But there are so many patients that come through that don't require any of those things. Mm. A large proportion of them actually don't. So um, I can actually manage to deal with a lot of it by myself. And a lot of that was in my head. Um, so I've actually really enjoyed working in that environment. I've had, you know, leaders and doctors and nurses that have been really welcoming and supportive. So the work has been um, fairly straightforward. Actually, the stuff around work that takes a bit more thinking about um, getting ready for working, for example, it can take a couple of hours in the day. Um, so it's actually stuff around that that's more challenging than the work itself. Right. I think... To support our colleagues with, you know, we, we have we have colleagues with so many different challenges, whether it be physical, whether it be psychological. Mm. Um, I think it's really just to have an open mind and to, you know, we, we our whole profession, I think sometimes we forget that we're here to care for our patients and that, that's, that, that's the only reason that we're here. But... While we're doing that, we should probably look after each other as well. Yeah. Um, so I think supporting each other through these different challenges and having an open mind, I think it's really important. And I, I don't think there's, there are, you know, particular prescriptive steps that we can take. I think the two key things is just to care about one another and have an open mind. So last question. I ask all my interviewees this question. Name one or two things that keep you sane in your very evidently crazy busy life. The thing is, I, I, I think I pick things that are interesting and fun to do. So everything that I do in my life is something that I find interesting. Um, I sometimes just like to take an entire day just to chill out, block out the world and, you know, just be by myself um, or just you know, do something fun or um, enjoyable. I, I met a girl recently, so it's been about since the accident I haven't had, um, yeah, you know, it's the first time I've found anyone to be that amazing. So that's added a whole other perspective to my life. Mm. And that was also about taking a risk and, um, you know, diving into some something. Um, so she's been amazing. Um, so that's a new change in my life that's, keeping me sane. Well, congrats. I hope it's all going very well. Well, thank you. It is. It is. It's, um, yeah. Yeah, she's great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me on Junior Doctor's Corner, Dinesh. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Dan. I'm really uh, grateful. It's fun. If you really like that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode.